Welcome to the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, John Bergman. At CBJ, we're always hoping to offer stories or expertise that can connect and inform and inspire other people who work in climbing businesses. And I think one area where there's a lot of information to be shared is in the legal department. Law, legalese, litigation, all of that stuff. You know what often costs a lot of money? Talking to a lawyer. But you know what we're about to give you for free? A talk with a lawyer. Because today's episode features my conversation with attorney Jason Pill. Jason is a longtime climber and he currently works with the Phelps Dunbar Law Firm in Tampa, Florida. His main areas of focus tend to be labor and employment law, but he's written a lot of pieces for CBJ about a wide range of legal topics, including he's done a whole Ask a Lawyer series, which you'll hear referenced in this episode. And basically, as you'll hear, I wanted to get Jason's insights about a number of different legal issues that are relevant to the climbing gym industry. So we talk about waivers and how protective they really are against lawsuits. We talk about some landmark cases and rulings that gym owners should know about. And we talk about the legal challenges that gym owners might be facing in the years to come. Quick disclaimer, of course, the stuff that Jason says in this episode isn't meant to be taken as direct legal counsel. It's more like his just general thoughts. It's a fireside chat. He offers tons of good stuff in here. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with attorney Jason Pill. CBJ and this podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. Kilter Grips has produced many of the most popular hold shapes in the world for almost 10 years. They also invented the Kilter Board, an innovative standardized training board with intuitive LEDs that light up the full hold perimeter. Kilter has won more CBJ Grip List awards than any other company. Learn more at settercloset.com. Stratty Climbing installs and refurbishes incredible landing surfaces for climbing gyms, rec centers, schools, and home walls. And since all floors wear down over time, Stratty often works with facilities to resurface old landing areas, extending the life to save money and avoid the landfill. Family owned and operated, the team at Stratty have been installing padded floors for over a decade. Learn more at strattyclimbing.com. Jason, you and I have corresponded a lot in the past for many, many different articles, but this is your inaugural Climbing Business Journal podcast appearance. So thanks so much for coming on the show today. Well, I certainly appreciate it. I'm happy to be here uh, virtually, uh, of course, but um, you know, eager to kind of convey our discussion in a, a different medium. I am always a captive audience for people whose story manages to combine their love of climbing and their, their knowledge about climbing and the climbing industry with their interest and their knowledge of a, another field, a disparate field, because there's no template for that usually. But that's exactly what you have done with your experience in climbing, the climbing industry, and your love of climbing. And combining that with your interest in law, your education in law, has combining those two things, climbing and law, has it made for a straight career path or has it been a winding journey with unexpected twists and turns along the way? Well, as a lawyer, I, I guess I'd be guilty of, of hedging some here, but it's probably been closer to the middle. I've been fortunate to have some great continuity in, in my career. I did manage a, a small climbing gym in Gainesville before going to law school, but otherwise went to law school and then started in the field of law. So it wasn't a true second career for me, like some. I've been fortunate to be at the same firm now for well over a decade and, and counting. So in that regard, there's been some linear elements, but everything beyond that has really been in some ways serendipitous, in some ways just a, a product of you know, right place, right time. And so it's really a combination of a lot of factors. But um, the climbing interest I had was something that began back when I was in high school, started up 
with a friend. We both kind of fell in love with it from there and, and kept climbing through college and law school and, and beyond and, and still to this day. And uh, I, I knew pretty quickly I was never going to be a very strong competitive climber. So that was not going to be the path for me. The educational path was, was far more successful and, and appropriate for me. And so I still kept that passion with the sport and then found some ways later in my career to stay involved with, with climbing from not only just the sport and doing it recreationally and enjoying it in that regard, but now getting involved some in, in the business element and also being able to, to volunteer in other endeavors like my role with USA Climbing. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what you do at, at USA Climbing, what that role is? Uh, of course. So I have a couple different roles. Uh, I'm on their risk management committee. And that's something that I first started doing many, many years ago with them, helped write that charter and, and form that committee about maybe four or five years ago. And then a couple of years ago, I joined the board of directors. So I'm on the USA Climbing board now, which has been a really rewarding experience working with a tremendous group of directors on that and seeing all the exciting growth with USA Climbing and the sport of climbing, not just on national level, but as you know, now with the Olympics, that booming international level as well. So I think we can all agree it's an absolutely exciting time to be involved in the sport. And so uh, USA Climbing is a great avenue for me to, to give back and um, provide some expertise from the legal standpoint to help the organization in some of those regards. Yeah, let's talk about the, the legal aspect of this. And it's good that you mentioned the growth of the sport, because when you look back at your own career in the climbing industry and how that career evolved over time, as you just explained. How has the legal aspect of climbing or, or climbing gyms evolved since you have been a, a part of the, the climbing world? So I would certainly say what's been most pronounced is just the increased sophistication level, whether it's some of the fancy things we see, like the interface and the all the apps that manage our accounts when we log into the gym, or if you want to track it, if you're on a you know tension board and from your phone, you're modulating all the different routes on the board. You know, that level of technology and sophistication was not present when I started climbing in the late 90s. And the gyms were there, but they were more disparate back then. They were smaller operations for the most part. Obviously, there's outliers, but really you've seen more of a shift towards some of the corporate formalities and the gyms just looking to expand a lot more. Back then, it was much more rare to find these large gym systems of 5, 10, 20 plus gyms in some instances. So I think the proliferation of the sport has brought more capital into the sport and more investment, uh, which has got its pros and cons. And I'm sure you could ask 10 people and get 10 different views very quickly on that. But I think you're just seeing a lot more sophistication. And also because there is more money coming into the industry itself and, and the business of climbing, you're seeing more exposure risks. Climbing gyms all of a sudden are attractive targets for folks if they're looking to file a lawsuit. Before, it might have been a small gym you know, in an, in an abandoned warehouse plaza, and it didn't really look like a very lucrative target for litigation, and so it probably made gyms a little safer. But now that they're becoming these big, sleek buildings with all the amenities and they have a lot more revenue coming in, it does make them a little more of a target in the legal sense, whether it's personal injury lawsuits, employment lawsuits, and a lot of variations on that. So I think the, the risks have increased as part of that exposure has increased. But I, overall, I think the sophistication level is probably the biggest increase I have seen from an operational perspective, from a legal perspective, from a management perspective and everything in between. So really that natural evolution has, has been something I've observed for, and now it's been you know 20 plus years, just seeing the growth and evolution of the industry and the sport for that matter. If we can continue looking at all that, but maybe in a, a figurative crystal ball. So like instead of looking at the past, looking ahead, what are some of the biggest legal challenges or legal issues facing gym owners in the coming years? I mean, I know you mentioned just kind of risk in general, right? This big hulking word that anybody listening to this podcast is certainly familiar with. But can you, can you kind of 
splice it down a, a little more specifically and think two years in the future, three years in the future, 10 years in the future, as, as much as it might be a little difficult to, to estimate the legal challenges that far ahead. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think there's three kind of buckets or, or categories of risk that I see a little more frequently, whether it's talking to folks in the climbing industry, advising clients in the climbing industry, but, but also in other industries at large. So I think as we kind of talk about this, there, the climbing industry is not especially unique, but it does have its own challenges that are present. I mean, certainly one of the biggest exposure risks for climbing gyms has been and will continue to be negligence cases, injuries, and anything associated with a bad accident at a gym. Uh, we see those cases. You can read them in the newspapers or online. I probably dated myself by saying the newspaper, but you can read about those cases. They still get filed. Even if you have a liability waiver, there's still arguments about how enforceable it is. These liability waivers vary by state. So there's a lot of minutiae to them. They're not just these automatic protections that some gyms may think. So there's a lot rolled into that. The suits will continue to be filed, especially as more people come to the gyms, especially as newer climbers come to the gym. Experienced climbers certainly can get injured as well, and we do, but it's it's the newer climbers. Sometimes we have more of a risk point because you have folks less familiar with the gear and, and the equipment. So certainly the, the negligence cases, the, the accidents, those are going to be there. It's inherent in the sport. It uh, doesn't mean you can't get sued for it. It also doesn't mean you don't have defenses to it, but you're going to still see those lawsuits. And as gyms become larger and it's more evident that they have money flowing through them as you know, more revenue, they look nicer, they look fancier, it will make them a little more attractive for folks that are debating whether to bring a lawsuit uh, when they look at this gym and think, well, you know what, there actually may be some some money in the, in the coffers of that gym. So maybe it is worth bringing a lawsuit. So uh, I think the the target on, on their backs has probably grown a little bit from the gym perspective. So I, I think that will just always be one of the largest risks. It's, again, it's just inherent with a physical sport. Second, I would say, and I'm kind of using this as a broad term, but I'll, I'll parse it out a little bit, but the challenges in the workplace, and by that, I mean the workplace and really more specifically the workforce. And a lot of what my practice focuses on is employment law. And I'm, I'm on the corporate side representing gyms and, and corporate clients dealing with workplace issues, whether it's constructing policies, handling disciplinary issues, counseling employees, figuring out compliance concerns, regulatory issues, and then also litigation. So if a, a corporate client gets sued by an employee, I would defend them in a lawsuit. So that's kind of the lens through which I look at this issue. But the workplace, like anywhere, will continue to evolve. And that is an area where we see a lot of challenges, especially as gyms grow because their workforce gets bigger. In climbing, we tend to have this almost tribal culture and because we all love climbing. Now, some employees may not care about climbing. They're just there for a paycheck or because it's close to their house and they want to work at that gym. But most employees at the climbing gym are there because they love climbing and that's great, but it doesn't mean that there won't be discontent in the workplace. It doesn't mean there won't be uh, folks feeling disenfranchised or frustrated or, or angsty, it, there can still be friction in the workplace, even if we all love climbing. And so you have to manage that one on an interpersonal level. And we just, as we can see, that gets more and more challenging as you get larger and you get more diverse thought in the gym, you get just a larger base of people, you're going to get diverse viewpoints. And so naturally that can create some friction. And then from a more legal perspective, there's just a lot of challenges that come with that. As climbing gyms grow, they legally become bound by more statutes and regulations. For example, certain statutes at the federal level don't kick in until you have at least 15 employees. There's probably a few smaller gyms that still skirt under that threshold if they've got 10 or 12 employees. That means they literally don't have the federal anti-discrimination statutes that apply to them. Other statutes may apply to state or local level. I'm not saying they can run out and do whatever they want, like it's the Wild West. But there's different considerations as you grow larger. So as gym systems grow and expand, they'll also need to keep up with these compliance concerns in the workplace. And the, the challenges when it comes to employment law 
really lie in the fact that there's so many interlocking statutes, some that are designed to interlock perfectly and work with one another, and some that exist in two separate spaces, but have drastically important considerations that will sometimes conflict. So when I, what I mean by that is you got to look at discrimination laws, retaliation laws, um, disability-based laws. There's a lot for employers to think about. Some climbing gyms may have not considered some of those issues when they were starting out. They were eager to open up the gym, get the holds on the wall, get folks into the gym, start making money. But if a gym skips some of those critical issues, like setting up employment policies and getting a lot of those key foundational documents and procedures in place, it can really create a challenge or a struggle to growth. And if you don't have that in check, you can create a lot of, uh, like I said, frustrations in the workplace, which can then lead to not just low morale, bad staff, uh, retention issues, but ultimately employment, liability, and, and lawsuits. So I see workplace concerns being one of them as well. And then the third and kind of final bucket or category, I'll say, is data privacy. And, and this is something that's impacting all companies, certainly larger ones, but smaller ones as well, because every company has some volume of sensitive data that it is keeping. At a minimum, a climbing gym is keeping data on its employees. Most climbing gyms, in fact, really all of them, probably have social security numbers for all their employees, perhaps banking information for direct deposit or whatever paycheck procedures they have, birthdays, medical information, possibly. That's a trove of valuable, personally identifiable information, or PII, as we would say in the legal context, that a gym is keeping just for its staff. And then layered on top of that, a gym may be keeping financial records of transactions of credit cards or bank statements. Uh, if it's collecting any information from its customers, if it's ever selling that information, which I know very few gyms do, but that can create challenges. So data privacy is, is a growing area of concern because naturally people are becoming more concerned about their own personal privacy and protecting their digital footprint, so to speak. So we're seeing a lot more regulation coming in at the privacy space. And I know that's not an area that most gyms historically have thought much about, but we're seeing it impacting every company because every company is keeping some quantum of data or sensitive information that they need to think about how they're managing and how they're protecting. Because if that data gets compromised, it becomes very costly. You see a lot of lawsuits filed over this. Obviously, these massive breaches of millions of records are you know, the things that you'll see in the, the headlines and command massive settlement sums and massive amounts of legal fees to defend, but you still see them on a smaller level as well for smaller businesses, which can include climbing gyms. So as gyms collect more information and try to aggregate that data, there's going to be more demands on them and how they're protecting that data and what they're doing with it. We're getting away from just a old metal filing cabinet filled with papers and, and liability waivers signed by anyone. And so much data is moving into the electronic space, or well, it has been now for decades, that managing it and protecting that data is becoming more important. So even if that's not as much of an immediate risk for gyms, it will become one over the next five and certainly 10 years, especially as gyms continue to grow and collect more information. It's uh, what I would call this information obesity, where we just want to collect as much information as we can. Sometimes we don't think what we're going to do with it. We just want it. We want to know this person's date of birth. We want to know why they come in here. We want to know which friend referred them. We want to know the day they bought their last pair of shoes and when they purchased the rope and how often they purchased chalk. And a lot of these are innocuous details. But what's happening is their companies are just collecting and collecting this data, not thinking about what they do with it or how they're protecting it. And that can create some real complications down the road. So I certainly see that as a present risk, especially for larger gyms or gyms that are collecting more data and really kind of forecasting down years, maybe five, 10 years out, I see that risk growing even more pronounced and distinct for gyms. There's a lot of stuff there that I want to get into. Maybe we can backtrack to some of the, the earlier stuff that you mentioned in a second, but let's stay on data privacy right now, because I think some people listening to this, whether they are an employee at a gym, or maybe they're just a customer at a gym, like you said, and they had to give a lot of information when they, when they signed up or whatever. What are the rights of people in this situation if they don't want to give all of this data? And maybe that's two separate issues, the rights of the employees and the rights of the customer. But is there any recourse for people that 
listen to what you just said and are thinking, geez, I don't want to give all my all my data for for whatever reason. Well, it's interesting because this issue is is currently being litigated and legislated as we speak. And at the federal level, we are not seeing as much movement on this. We're trying to figure out, will there be national data protection standards? And there's some industry-specific ones like HIPAA, which many folks have heard about, but wouldn't apply in the climbing context or certain ones for banking, et cetera. Where we're seeing more movement on this is at the state level, where states are becoming more protective and allowing consumers primarily to have more rights over their data, to have more rights about how their data is collected, maintained, and stored, and more importantly, having the right to request the deletion of the data. And this is actually a trend that Europe has been far more progressive than us on. Um, There's a a bill called the GDPR that's been, or I should say a law, um, the GDPR that's been enacted for quite a while in Europe that gives uh, the EU citizens some, some very strong rights about data protection. And you're now seeing that being used as the mold for various state uh, laws that are being enacted primarily in more progressive or historically democratic states. California leads the country on this. Uh, Vermont is up there as well. New York has some pretty strong protections. So right now it's largely a state issue, but for individual consumers or customers, there are some protections about how your data is maintained and making sure that you're getting information about that or being able to request that information. And in some instances, in some states, you can even request that a company delete your data or not maintain your data. So what we're seeing is a push to get more disclosures out there so individuals know what's happening with their data, where it's going, and then having a little more ability to control who's keeping it and what they're doing with it. It's it's like the, all the messages you see anytime you're on the internet and you go all these pop-ups about cookies and accepting that the terms. That's because it's collecting your data and tracking your digital footprints, and you have to agree to that because of some of these regulations. So you'll see a little more of that giving folks the right to control where their data goes. But at the same time, businesses have the right to say, well, if you don't want to give us that information, we don't have to let you come in. You know, we need that information to process your registration, to complete your liability, whatever, whatever it may be. So there is a natural tension there that, that we will see. Uh, for the most part, climbing gyms are not collecting overly sensitive information. On employees, you're going to collect a little more because you're going to need it for payroll purposes and things like that. But for your customer base, you're generally not going to need as much that sensitive information. If you are collecting it as a gym, I would encourage you to think about why you're collecting it and make sure you really want it. The general principle that is often recommended is this bare minimum necessary. Collect the bare minimum necessary to complete the task. If I only need your name, I don't also want your social security number and your date of birth and your mailing address because now I have that information and now I'm responsible if I lose it. So if I only collected your name, I wouldn't have to worry about that other information. So you see that concept come up as well. And it's relevant for the climbing gyms because they need to be thinking about what information are they collecting? And more importantly, what information are they keeping? If you just swipe a payment card and you're not maintaining that payment information, you're creating far fewer concerns and obligations than if you're actively keeping all these credit card numbers on file. Because God forbid uh, some ne'er-do-well got into your system and hacked into all these credit cards, and now you have compromised thousands or hundreds or thousands, however big your membership bases, credit card details, that's going to become a problem. And you're going to have a problem with the, the customers who credit, whose credit card numbers you lost, and also the credit card companies who have to pay for and reimburse the fraud that may have occurred as a result of that. So there's a lot of risk inherent in there. And you see a lot more of these lawsuits coming out. They're, they're much more popular, I would say, uh, these days. You see a lot of these data breach lawsuits. So for some gyms, that, that may seem like a lot of doom and gloom. And they may think, hey, I don't have these issues. And, and they may be right. But I encourage, at least from the gym perspective, take a moment, audit your data collection practices. What are you collecting on people? How are you keeping it? Is it in a secure place? Even if it's a a paper file, you still need to protect that too. So think about that also. But but really think about what you're doing with the data you get. It's just becoming a much more common topic in the discourse and a much more common trend in litigation. So it's only a matter of time before companies get hacked these days. And the more information that you're maintaining, the greater your exposure risks. And the last thing you want to do 
is get sued for a data breach by your own customers. And you certainly don't want to have to tell all your customers, I'm sorry, the data that you entrusted us to protect, we have now lost it. Somebody hacked our systems and you've got to send out a letter to your customers telling them about that loss and about that incident. That's obviously a terrible uh, move from a PR perspective and just having good relations with your, your customers and client base. Related to the gathering of data, I want to go back to something you said a little bit ago when you were talking about negligence and injuries and accidents that occur at a gym. And you you were talking about waivers and how gyms can still be sued even if people do sign the waiver. And can you speak a little more about that? Because I that is something that I think everybody wonders at some point when they're filling out a waiver or maybe when they're reading about climbing accidents and whatnot, which is, okay, how airtight are these waivers? Because you hear of somebody, a horrible accident, tragic accident at a gym, and most of the time, those people probably signed waivers because I think most of the gyms I've been to, you can't get near the climbing walls unless you sign a waiver, right? Because you have to do it literally as as soon as you step foot in the door and, and walk up to the front desk. So these accidents that are happening, these people probably signed waivers, and yet you still see lawsuits brought forth. So can you talk a little bit more about the airtightness or maybe not so airtight aspect of climbing gym waivers? Well, keeping up with your airtight metaphor, if this were a submarine, your waivers, a lot of water would be leaking in. So they are not as airtight as folks would hope or as they may have been told. There's certainly a lot of protections that a waiver can provide, but it is not uh, foolproof and it is not beyond reproach or criticism. So the matter of waivers is also one that's largely left to the various states. So at the legal level, we you know, have federal laws that would apply nationally. And then we have state-specific laws. And the matter of waivers are largely left to be regulated by the states because they're largely considered a matter of contract. And where I am in Florida, our state defines what we think certain contract rules should be. And that's different from what California defines them to be or New York or you know, pick your state. So it's largely a state matter. And the states are very specific about what needs to be in these waivers, how clear they need to be, because there is a natural reluctancy. It's somewhat paternalistic to know that people can sign away their rights and saying, well, wait a minute. So you're telling me if I sign this waiver, no matter how bad you mess up, I have no recourse that I'm essentially giving you permission to screw up or to hurt me. And, and that, of course, is where you see the tension. The judiciary has some reluctance to fully enforce these. So it will vary by state, but a lot of states will carve out either willful negligence or gross negligence or what we would call kind of this more egregious conduct and say, okay, if this is what we would consider more of like a basic negligence of a hold spins, it was properly installed, but it spins and you fall off and you break an ankle. Well, that's common negligence. And, and maybe that's me protected by a liability waiver where you can get that out and the gym has some protections. But once it starts getting into something more egregious where somebody failed to uh, to clip in a climber before they belayed because they were talking or they were on their cell phone or they weren't paying attention or a rope broke because the gym wasn't properly maintaining it and it just ignored the safety precautions. When you reach what would be considered these more egregious levels of negligence or what would at least be argued to be more egregious, you're going to have more challenges enforcing that waiver. Again, it's going to vary by your state and what carve-outs your state has. But when the conduct gets more egregious, the protections become less likely to be enforced. So you still have to regulate the conduct. Even if there's a waiver in place, somebody may still sue the gym and try to attack that waiver. They may attack the waiver on some type of formality. Maybe the signature isn't valid. The e-signature wasn't properly done. Maybe the, the minor wasn't properly signed for whatever it may be. There's kind of procedural challenges to the waiver itself that, that can be lodged. And you still have to fight those off. And then there might be challenges to the actual incident itself saying, sure, your waiver says that I can't sue you and I'm assuming all risk, but I didn't think or expect that you would be so negligent that your ropes would be frayed and they would split or that your auto belays wouldn't be fully anchored into the wall and would just fall off. And those are obviously extreme examples, but it's, it's, as you get into that more extreme conduct, you run a greater risk. So 
you should obviously get the waivers. You should certainly be talking to uh, an attorney in your state who's familiar with the state laws on them, because again, it does vary, especially procedurally. Some states have specific language that has to be in there. Some states even have specific requirements for the font, making sure you're not doing like a boilerplate, you know, size six font message. So you need to make sure you're following those steps as a climbing gym and, and looking at it to make sure your waiver itself is legally valid and enforceable. And then still making sure you're taking reasonable protections at your gym so that if an accident happens, it is truly an accident and not a dereliction of duty because something failed to be properly maintained or somebody failed to properly observe something or, or train someone. So the waivers are enforceable, but they have limits. So you would be foolhardy to just assume that because you have a waiver, everything else is fine and you are incapable of being sued. You're incapable of having a judgment attached to you. There's still some risks out there, but you want to have that protection and you want to combine it with very reasonable safety measures in the gym. So you have all the best arguments if there is an accident and if you have to defend yourself in a lawsuit. More on looking into this crystal ball of the future and the legal challenges of the future. I know if somebody is wanting to open up a gym this day and age more than ever, there are considerations such as, oh, how big do I want the gym to be? Do I want it to be a small sort of dojo type of gym or do I want it to be a, a really big gym with all sorts of amenities? Do I want to offer mixed climbing, meaning some ropes, some bouldering, maybe some autobelays? Or do I want it to be just what we call it, Climbing Business Journal, say, bouldering focused? Do I want to offer youth programming? Do I want to have a youth team that, that competes and all of that stuff? Now, I know you don't have data in front of you, but when, when thinking about all the different options that go into creating a climbing gym and, and opening a climbing gym, are there any types of gyms that, in your opinion, pose more or less risk or maybe risk of accidents, negligence, that sort of thing than other types of gyms? Or is it all just kind of like, well, it's still a, a climbing gym is a climbing gym and there's inherent risk and it's, it's pretty equal no matter what? Well, at the expense of sounding reductive and, and maybe even a little crass, that the higher you go, the higher the risk. So if you are doing a boulder-only gym, you are at least reducing the likelihood of more catastrophic injuries. I mean, certainly, as I know anyone who's bouldered before, there's tweaked shoulders or sprained ankles or broken wrists if you fall awkwardly. So certainly, there's a lot of risks when bouldering and depending on how you land. But the, the real risks and where we see more issues are when folks naturally go to higher heights and if somebody falls from... 15, 20, 25, 30 feet plus, whatever it may be. And also once you start allowing sport climbing, if you know, you've got some folks taking some bad whips, those are some areas where you might see a little more injury. So from a negligence perspective and increased exposure there, it's really just, are you creating climbs or routes that allow more exposure and more risk and not the legal exposure, but more, you know, uh, we think of it as exposure in the climbing room. I mean, if you're in a gym and you're doing a sport climb and you're setting your bolts 15 feet apart, so your folks have a lot of slack out, you're just increasing the chance that folks are going to take bad falls or bad whips. So one of the things to be mindful of just from a legal perspective is trying to increase the safety wherever you can. Being mindful of how are you setting routes and talking to your route setters and say, look, if there's a dangerous move, let's try to get it in the middle of the route where someone's four or five flips in at that point not when they're at the first clip and they might death. So, you know, there's little things like that you can think about that may compromise some of the route setting slightly, but should be geared towards safety. And that's just a good goal to have anyways, because the gym doesn't want any other people getting hurt, you know, legal liability or otherwise. But just thinking about that, are you setting a lot of risky moves where your climbers are going to be falling in a compromised position? Are you setting someone up where the move has them doing a heel hook where their heels locked into a hold and the hands are terrible. So if they fall, their foot's stuck and something's going to get twisted, whether it's a knee or an ankle, or they're going to fall in an awkward angle. So that's something to certainly be mindful of from that liability exposure on the negligence side. Just are you setting routes that are just more inherently dangerous? Are you talking to your route setters and saying, hey, we want to have the best, most exciting routes? I get it. But let's also make sure we're setting them up in a way that's going to be safe for the climbers, especially at the lower grades. 
you know, V0s, V1s, V2s. I mean, those are what beginners are going to be trying. So you shouldn't have aggressive moves that have these folks fully exposed or have them doing these big lunging moves where they're going to take awkward balls that they're not as used to. You can certainly you know, build that in at the higher levels where folks will hopefully have a better sense of their body control and whatnot. But that's certainly something to keep keep in mind. Just think about what those routes that you're setting and what you're doing to make sure that your customers and your climbers, whether they're beginners or experienced folks, are making smart moves that aren't placing them in a dangerous position. That's something that I think is, is a small step, but can, can really help uh, just limiting those accidents from happening in the first place, because then you don't have to worry about finding out whether your waiver is valid or not, because hopefully you've prevented the accident from happening at all. So just, just keeping an eye on, on stuff like that. And then the other thing is going back to that original kind of question of, well, when you're opening a gym, what might you think about? Where are the pressure points? I, I think it's just a good question that all gyms should be asking themselves or potential gym owners, whether they're opening their first gym or their 10th, you know, do all your market research and figure out, should it be a bouldering focused gym or you have top ropes or sport climbing or yoga, whatever it may be. But think about that, do your market research, and then make sure you're laying that foundation to have good legal compliance. I know that sounds really boring because when you're getting ready to open a gym, you want to do all the way more exciting stuff, like go shop for holds and go fill out the pro shop and, and get all the fun stuff. But you can hopefully set some time to look at these legal risks. And if you do a little more work on the front end, it will hopefully save you a lot of work on the back end. So getting a good handbook in place so your employees know what your policies are. Because if you don't have a handbook and employees don't know what they should or shouldn't be doing, it's going to create all types of problems in the workplace, some legal and some just morale-based problems. Also, if you think you may want to expand one day, if you're looking beyond one gym, or maybe you're on your 10th gym, but you want to look at number 11, 12, and 13, and so forth, there are some corporate formation issues you may want to look at. There are things you can do to better posture yourself for expansion down the road or acquisition down the road, if that's your goal instead, maybe you just want to be acquired. So that's something to think about at the beginning. So it's something a lot of gym owners will often overlook in that race, like I said, to open and get to way more exciting things like designing the walls. But if a little thought is paid to that, it can be very beneficial down the road, because there are some things you can do in the beginning in terms of how you might structure your gym, what type of ownership you might be giving away that can make it easier or harder down the road if you do have more corporate plans or grander visions of growth and expansion, whether it's acquiring more locations, getting acquired, or growing in a different organic fashion. So that would be the other point I would say. We, you know, we talked about that liability and, and negligence and accidents and falling, but thinking something a little more positive and, and growth related, I would encourage any gym that's either opening or in the early stages or a gym system that's expanding and looking to keep expanding to, to think about that. Consult with an attorney if you can, or someone who knows about that, those business expansions, because there are some things that you can do that will put yourself in a better position to attract more capital. If that's what you need down the road, you'll be in a better position to get acquired if that's your goal or just be in a better position to grow organically if that's the path. Every gym is going to have a different path and a different objective, but a little work uh, at the outset might better position that gym, whether it's from a, like I said, expansion perspective, financial perspective, corporate perspective, or some combination of all three. You alluded to this, but I couldn't help but notice when you were talking about risk and negligence, it sounds like a lot of that comes down to the route setters, which... It, makes it's kind of common sense if you think about it but when when you explain it like that i wonder if there's a disparity then in the industry or at a lot of gyms because while a lot of the negligence and the risk and all of that the potential for for accidents does come down to the route setters or the route setting they are usually not the people that are like you just said consulting with an attorney they're not generally the people at the gym who are well schooled in the legalese they're not the people in the gym that are working with the state to get the waiver in place. That's usually the gym owner and the or the manager, not the route setters. Is that a place where maybe a bridge could be spanned? Or, you know, the gap could be maybe lessened a little bit between between that. That's a great point. Well, a great question and a great point. 
So one of the, the dirty secrets about our American legal system is a lot of the liability creating actions are done by folks that are not at the apex of the corporation or the company. So to your point exactly, a lot of the things that are creating liability aren't always done by the gym owner or upper management. It might be the route setters who are setting the routes. It might be your folks that are teaching ballet classes, so kind of lower on that proverbial chain of the corporate hierarchy. That's where a lot of the liability can lie. A lot of it's also at the managerial level. We see this all the time in employment cases. It's the often the managers, so really just one tier up, that have the biggest impact in most employment cases because those are the folks making decisions on hiring and firing and whether to promote someone. And these are these, we call them adverse employment actions in my world. These are the actions that are imputing liability to the company. And it's not like the manager in one branch of a thousand plus workforce company is calling the CEO and asking the CEO for his or her advice on whether to promote someone. So these decisions being made at lower levels trickle down and can impact everybody and then create liability all the way up. So when we talk about whether it's liability from negligence and and those type of risks and also employment risks from discrimination, harassment, uh, wage and hour compliance, a lot of the actions that can create the potential liability occur at the management level, not upper management, but mid-level or even lower management, or your route setters. So it's not a situation where only the owner or the CEO can impute liability to the company or the gym. So the reason uh, we see that is because it's just the way these laws have evolved, because it's really a reflection of how these companies work um, historically. And more importantly, what it has shown us is the importance of training your managers and your route setters and all your employees. So whether it is an anti-discrimination or an anti-retaliation, anti-harassment training, everyone should be getting that, not just the CEO and the highest level employees, but the folks that are interacting with more employees and uh, kind of your boots on the ground, so to speak. They need to know these, these laws as well. Because if an employee makes a request for an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, they may not take it to the legal department. And most gyms don't even have a legal department. So they're probably going to ask their supervisor right above them. And if their supervisors never had any training on how to handle that request, to at least take it to someone who knows what to do with it, that can create instant liability. And so that's where you hope you have an, an HR department or individual, depending on the size of your gym. Hopefully you have connections with some external legal counsel to get some of that advice because you can create liability very quickly at levels of the company that are much lower than what most people imagine. And to your point at the outset there, the same would apply for the, the route setters. The route setters aren't going to create personal liability for themselves, but they're setting the routes that folks could get injured on if they're setting unnecessarily dangerous moves. Now, hopefully the waiver covers it like we talked about, but you want to make sure that you're training your route setters or at least having a discussion with them and saying, you know, if we're putting a move that's going to create more exposure or that's a little more dangerous, are we being thoughtful about where that is in the route? How much slack is going to be out if it's a you know, sport climb, it's a boulder problem, you know, are we at an awkward angle? Is the, the climb are going to be in a weird body position? What level climb is this, as we were talking about before, in terms of are we attracting beginners on this climb that aren't going to know what to, to do as comfortably or you know, more seasoned climbers? So it sounds like so much doom and gloom there, but it's just the reflection of the fact that a lot of folks in the gym can create liability for the gym, which is why we see more of these lawsuits and more of these issues we talked about, and, and being mindful of that increased training so folks know some of the risks that are out there. And if they don't know how to handle every situation, because every manager is not going to know every employment law and every concern there and every negligence law, just making sure they know who to go to. You know, if there's a concern, is there someone at the company or multiple people who can be turned to and they have these questions? If it's an HR issue, do they have someone in HR? Can they report to a manager who can call an attorney if they don't have someone in-house who can handle it? Just making sure they're getting directed to the right individual. Because again, a few minutes on the, the front end of, of a little bit of guidance or counseling can save a lot of trouble on the back end uh, if those discussions or if those trainings are taking place. Let's give some, some of that knowledge here if we can. Let's impart some knowledge because I think just as a, a citizen, right, there are these landmark cases, legal cases, legal rulings that I think everybody is familiar with or they know the case name, even if they're not 
well-versed in, in law, right? I'm wondering if maybe whether we're talking route setters or employee workers or, or managers, whatever it might be, are there any landmark cases related to climbing gyms or related to the employment that, you know, that could pertain to a climbing gym? Any landmark cases that people working in a gym should know about? Well, it's interesting because as we see more litigation in the climbing industry, it does appear that a lot of those cases get settled. They don't necessarily go to trial. They don't even go to summary judgment, which is kind of like a trial on the papers, so to speak. But what that means is we don't get as many rulings in these cases in the climbing industry. So really, we look at other cases that are kind of industry agnostic that could impact the climbing industry because these laws apply to climbing gyms. For example, one of the, the bigger landmark decisions that came out a couple of years ago was in 2020, it was a, a, the Bostock case from the Supreme Court. And, and a lot of folks may not know that name, but they may remember the case because it was the decision that extended the federal anti-discrimination protections to the LGBT community. Because before that, this was an issue that was deeply divided across the country between different federal jurisdictions, and a lot of jurisdictions were split on the issue. There's quite a schism about some jurisdictions, and, and jurisdictions in this context are a collection of states. So some jurisdictions found that LGBTQ individuals were protected by Title VII, that's our anti-federal, anti-discrimination statute, and other jurisdictions said no. They, the way they, those courts read the statute, as amended in 1964, that there was no protections for LGBTQ individuals. And so that was brewing for a while. And ultimately, the Supreme Court did extend those protections. And that's especially relevant because a lot of managers may not know that or may not be tracking it. Now, hopefully, there isn't any discrimination going on in gyms. And hopefully, there's no discrimination of LGBTQ individuals simply because somebody thought a court would have previously allowed it. But now we have that enshrined in, in a decision from a couple of years ago. And it's a good reminder that the laws on these issues evolve. And so you do want to look at the training that we talked about before, because the managers need to know this. They need to know if there is an instance in the workplace of someone who's being discriminated against or bullied or harassed for being a, a member of the LGBTQ community, the manager needs to do something about it. Now, they should have never been turning a blind eye, but certainly after this case in 2020, they, they shouldn't either. And so we're seeing those rights evolving in real time. There's been more advances recently in cases regarding transgendered individuals and, and body dysphoria. Gender dysphoria was just recently recognized as a disability by uh, the first federal appeals court. So that was a way of essentially protecting that and, and classifying as a quote unquote disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, which then provides protections for individuals who have gender dysphoria. So we're seeing these protections being extended in real time. The, the Bostick case of 2020, that's the Supreme Court case I was just referencing. You know, that was probably the most significant one that we had seen in, in quite a while and probably will see for quite a while. But it's a good reminder that these laws are evolving. They change as society changes. Some of them are driven more by certain changes with administrations from a political perspective, simply just court composition, as we see on the Supreme Court, things have certainly changed over the last few years in that regard. So those things are, are changing a lot. I think that's something just to be mindful of. I don't have any reason to believe there's a lot of LGBTQ discrimination in the climbing industry. I certainly hope there's not, but it's just a reflection of how these laws that might have been passed in the 60s and some in the 80s and 90s are trying to keep up with these changes in society. Society and technology will always outpace the law. And the law is going to try to catch up. And that's one that comes to mind. And then the other one I wanted to point out, because I think it's especially relevant and somewhat related in the sports context, is the U.S. women's soccer team. A lot of folks remember this. I mean, it's actually still going on and it's been going on for quite a while. But the lawsuit brought by the, the women's national soccer team alleging and, and really showing issues with uh, unequal pay to their, their male counterparts. And it was quite a lengthy litigation. But in August of 2022, they finally reached a settlement in that suit. It was a $24 million settlement. So it was a very massive amount and pretty record-breaking in, in many ways. And that settlement finally got approved in, in August of 2022 after years of very 
very costly litigation. But at the heart of that dispute was the, the simple premise that these female athletes that were exceeding at a world-class level and literally being the best in the world uh, were not being paid as much as their male counterparts. And the reason that's relevant to, to any industry and certainly the climbing industry is just that reminder to keep that focus on gender equality and pay equality. Not just because it's the right thing to do or it sounds very progressive or altruistic, but because it's the law. And we have the Equal Pay Act. And it's been around for a long time. So it's not some like new trendy thing that you may have missed. Equal pay has been around for decades. We're seeing much more enforcement of that at the, the federal level and even the state agency level. So more companies are getting investigated for this. If you're having issues of unequal pay, it is absolutely toxic to a workplace. It will poison your workforce extremely quickly if folks feel like they're not being paid in an equal manner. Obviously, you're going to disenfranchise half or whatever your population is of people that are in that group, whatever your numbers may be. So it's just a reminder to, to keep an eye on your salaries and your compensation. Sometimes what we see and what I have to counsel against clients is they take these historical salaries or structures that they had in place for so long, and they're not updating them. And that's where you can really fall into a trap. So you want to just take a little time every now and then, look at your salaries. If there's a meaningful difference between two people, make sure there's a good and legal business justification. That's what you really want to look at. It can't just be, well... The, the front desk employee A gets paid $15 and front desk employee B gets paid $20. And the only difference is one is a male and one is a female. Because then the question is, well, why is one getting $5 more an hour? Is there something else justifying it? Because if it's just gender, that's a problem. So the, the U.S. women's national soccer team really highlighted that issue at, at a worldwide level, given the, their role on the international competitive scene. But it is a reminder, even at this you know, national and regional and even local level, just make sure you're staying mindful of that in your gym. You don't need to stop every day and audit all your payroll. But periodically, if you do annual reviews, it's a great time to do it then. Look at what your pay salary scales are across your different positions. Figure out why people are getting paid certain amounts. See if you need to make any adjustments. It happens sometime. And also be aware there's of the increased focus. There's a number of states that now have pay transparency laws, you may have heard of it, requiring companies to actively disclose the salary bands for their positions. So you can't simply hide behind this uh, black box and say, well, we're not going to tell you what we pay everyone. It's a mystery. California, Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, and others all have pay transparency statutes now in different forms or fashions, forcing companies to disclose their salary ranges with the goal of adding that transparency so folks can get a better sense of if the pay is fair and equal. So we're seeing a lot more focus there. Like I said that the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team really highlighted that. The issue had been brewing for a while before they ever raised it. It's not like unequal pay didn't exist until the, the women's soccer team brought the suit, but it really drew more attention to it. And we are seeing more enforcement from the agency level, state and federal. So that's an area to keep an eye on. I, I don't see that slowing down. If anything, I see even more laws in, in the future allowing more access to that data so employees can make a more informed assessment to know if there's something in the workplace that might be unfair or perhaps uh, or potentially biased. And then the, the final note I'll just make on that, because this is something that comes up all the time with, with clients, make sure that you're aware of the laws about an employee's ability to discuss their salary. Some companies say, hey, you can't discuss your salary with others. That's private and confidential. Well, that is categorically unlawful. A company wants to say that many times. I've had clients tell me how much they want to say that, but they can't. There are certain rules under the National Labor Relations Act, which is essentially the, the act that governs the formation and regulations of unions that prohibit any type of prohibition on salary discussions. And even if you don't have a union at your climbing gym, and there's only one in the country I'm currently aware of, these laws will still apply and that's the one that comes up the most frequently. And it is absolutely a, a trap for the unwary is any restriction on discussing salary. Uh, there's state limitations on as well, but there's federal ones as well. So that's something we see that comes up a lot where folks want to restrict their employees' discussion on salary because they're concerned it will create some workplace strife. 
Uh, but those restrictions are unlawful and, and will create some challenges as well. So just kind of to, to bring it full circle on that salary piece. If somebody is listening to this and they've been maybe inspired to do more research on their own to become more legally minded or, or better educated when it comes to the legal aspect of owning or operating their gym, what would you recommend they do? I, I suppose, in, in other words, they, okay, they listen to this podcast, they're, they're stoked to, to kind of self-educate. What's the next step or, or the next steps? Well, there's a couple of different ways to go. Ideally, any climbing gym owner, manager, whatever role that person may be, they should strongly consider having an attorney that they can consult with. They don't need to pay an expensive monthly retainer. Most attorneys work on an hourly fee and they'll just bill you when you use them. And I know that creates costs. I'm certainly not naive to how the profession works. Most basic level, I would say get a attorney, an attorney that you're comfortable with, uh, one that knows your business, one that knows the industry, one that knows your geographic locale, if possible. Um, sometimes that matters. Sometimes it doesn't. If it's a federal law regulation, it doesn't matter. That's a good starting point. You don't need to use that attorney all the time, but you need to have that resource there because you don't want to wait until there is a problem and then you're scrambling to find an attorney and you're already in a clock. Maybe you got a complaint that's filed and you've got 21 days to respond and that time is ticking while you're trying to clear conflicts and sign engagement letters. So I would strongly recommend that a climbing gym try to find a relationship with an attorney. I'm not, that can even be something that doesn't cost any money. Just get that relationship and have someone that may be there as needed. So that's something that at a basic level a climbing gym should do. There are a lot of resources online. Obviously, the CBJ puts out a lot of content. I myself have authored a lot of it to shamelessly promote it, but you can go and find a lot of those articles. Uh, the CWA also publishes a lot of content on that, webinars, white papers. So there's a lot of online resources out there. If you're doing any research for legal compliance reasons, I also recommend you track it down. And you don't need a detailed log of everything you did or how many minutes you spent listening to this or watching that. But generally track that because some of these statutes that we talk about, like wage and hour statutes, they do have certain increased damages that apply if something was done in bad faith or in the absence of good faith. And the inverse of that, and why it's important here, is that you can actually argue a defense of good faith saying, I tried to comply. So my damages should not be so severe. And in the wage and hour context, for example, the Fair Labor Standards Act, or the FLSA is one of our many acronyms that we use. The damages will go back often two years for uh, you know an overtime violation, a minimum wage violation. But if there's a showing of bad faith, if you can't show good faith, it goes back three years. So you can add a whole nother year of damages. And you can also get what's called liquidated damages, which doubles the damages. And one of the ways to fend off these double damages and this extra year of liability is by showing good faith efforts to comply with the law. Now, whether just doing some basic Googling will be enough is, is debatable, but if you're taking any efforts, you do wanna track that, make a little folder. If there's articles that you saw that are helpful, print them off and keep them. Every little bit may help. It won't necessarily be the, the cure-all, but you do wanna get a general sense of tracking some of that. But I would say, look at some of the resources online. CWA does a great job getting content out there. CBJ does a great job as well. Climbing Wall Summit's got a lot of content. If you're really ambitious, there are uh, many free CLEs or what we call continuing legal education seminars online. So if you really want to dig in, there's some of those. Uh, but I do think it's very helpful if most gyms find a relationship with an attorney that they're comfortable with, build that relationship in advance. It can be something that you can form over something as simple as lunch or coffee. It doesn't need to involve an expensive retainer. It doesn't need to involve massive amounts of upfront money, but just getting that relationship in place. So if there is an issue, you have that rapport already there and you've already gotten some of the administrative details out of the way. And if you have an issue, it can be as simple as picking up the phone, making the call, hey, this just happened in the workplace. How should I handle it? How should I discipline this employee? Whatever it may be, or somebody just fell and we have an accident, how do we handle it? you're going to want to have somebody there that you can contact in real time and not have to scramble and get recommendations and do that at, at that time. So I would encourage folks to try to set that up. Again, it doesn't have to require a large outlay of money. So if you're finding an attorney that says, hey, 
I'd love to work with you. If you give me a $10,000 retainer, find some other options and, and see what else is out there. But I think that's a good first step just to have that kind of fire extinguisher behind the glass that you can break in case, in case of emergency. And then you can also do your own research as well. And if you want, if you go to your attorney, if you find one and you get comfortable and say, I would like to learn more about this, ask your attorney, do you have any resources you can share? I'm often sharing materials with clients as a courtesy. I'm not charging them. Say, hey, here's something that I have much better access to because we have more resources as, as a law firm, for example. Uh, here's a presentation we did. Here's a Zoom link if you want to watch it. We'll get you some training. Here's a, a treatise that we have on this topic. Um, so if you have an attorney that you're dealing with or you're trying to find an attorney, ask that attorney, do you have any good resources you recommend? So that's really a, a great um, person to help kind of guide you through a good Sherpa, so to speak, um, who can help you navigate these things a lot more easily and give you a much more uh, focused way of, of approaching it. You mentioned your writing for CBJ and anybody listening to this, I would point out that you wrote and continue to write from time to time a, a whole series of articles that we call Ask a Lawyer, in which anybody, but it's mostly gym owners, operators, managers, can write in with a question that they have relating to law and, and running their climbing gym, and you give a, a detailed answer about whatever the topic may might be. So if people want to go back in the archives, so to speak, the Climbing Business Journal archives, they can find a bunch of your Ask a Lawyer articles. Jason, where can people find more of your work or if they even maybe wanted to reach out to, to your law firm and whatnot, how could they, how could they get a hold of you? Well, they can certainly work through the CBJ. You find any of my old articles, my, my contact information is there. I'm with a law firm called Phelps Dunbar. We've got about 350 attorneys throughout the Southeast and I am uh, located in, in Tampa, which may seem ironic to many folks since it's about as flat as it could be as a state. So I have to climb in gyms and then travel north and, and west for some real rock adventures. Um, but my contact information is there. Uh, you can find me online. It's uh, jason.pill at phelps.com. Folks can email me if they have a question. Uh, we try to make a lot of content available on CBJ. All the archives are there. We've worked a lot together in the past to try to find some really helpful topics for gym owners and some, what I would say, some good primers on. I know we've done what I think were really informative articles on wage and hour compliance, um, anti-discrimination issues, anti-harassment issues, corporate formation, corporate expansion, liability waivers. I know we've, we've written about in the past. So I would certainly suggest a lot of folks look there. There's a lot of good content, a lot of it is uh, a few years old that stands up quite strong and although there might be some small tweaks along the lines with the, the the laws no major course corrections on what we've written about in the past so some good content there and i said again to, to plug the cwa as well i know they're putting out a lot of good content and giving resources and then anyone's welcome to, to contact me directly you can find my information online through the cbj or phelps dunbar that's the, the law firm that i'm with and i'm um, happy to to talk to folks. And if nothing else, I'm also happy to hear what folks are seeing in the industry. Um, it's always helpful for me to, to know what folks are seeing. And we have uh, some folks will just talk and share stories. And I'll tell them what I'm seeing from climbing gyms and others. And they'll tell me what they're seeing. And it's a really productive exchange of information that we both benefit from. And while I do work with climbing gyms, my client base is really expansive across all different industries. It's I've got software companies, car rental companies, uh, clinical laboratories, package delivery companies, manufacturers, healthcare clients, et cetera. And, and the diversity is interesting because I can see how things affect different industries and, and see trends on a more holistic level, which is really great uh, to pass that along to, to clients and contacts. And then likewise, I always benefit when they can share what they're seeing in their world as well. Uh, at a more focused and, and granular level. So it's it's interesting to be able to compare those two perspectives with, with the different folks I interact with. Well, I know we, we got into some pretty substantive, uh, pretty heavy stuff there, but I do feel like in a sense, we've just scratched the surface, of course, because the law and, and, and cases, there's always going to be new stuff coming up. So Jason, we will uh, we'll have to get you back on here again. I hope to, to talk more round two next time, but uh Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. This has been really an enjoyable discussion, but also uh, really informative. And I really appreciate your time. 
Uh, well, happy to be a part of it and happy to get more information and content out to the industry. I've been climbing out for over 20 years. I love the sport. I love giving back. I love being involved with it. And I love working with people in the sport. So uh, happy to get more resources out there and more information. So thanks to all the folks that have read the CBJ articles over the year and uh, over the years, especially those who have sent along uh, the kind words of support. I always appreciate seeing that. And certainly want to thank everyone who's uh, listened to today's podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Big thanks to Jason for coming on the show and going deep into all that stuff. We'll be back soon for another episode. But in the meantime, check out all the stuff that Jason has authored on the CBJ website. And also give CBJ a follow on Instagram and Twitter. And if you feel compelled, tell a friend about this episode. Because we want as many people as possible to be knowledgeable about the legal nuances of the gym industry. We'll see you next time.